You are listening to the Rural Roundup for the latest news in agriculture. I'm Kerry Hammond for the Farm Advisory Service. On today's episode, we have a brief roundup of the rural news. We hear about how to use the quick fast search tool to ensure you're making the most profit possible from your grain. We bring you a sneak peek of our fascinating new sister podcast, Natural Capital. And we speak to the producer of that podcast to find out what's on his desk. First up is Tiffany McTaggart to bring you her Rural Roundup. Today we're talking about Muirburn, the Australian Trade Deal, the Nature Restoration Fund and forage budgeting. For those of you in the hills, it is a time of year to start thinking about Muirburn, which aims to create a mosaic of habitat on the hills which can benefit wildlife. This can be carried out from the 1st of October through until the 15th of April inclusive, during the standard period. This avoids the harming of nesting birds and reptiles in the spring. The Australian trade deal is set to come into force in the autumn of this year. This trade deal will increase the volume of Australian lamb on our shelves, and with the economic pressures affecting the weekly shop, our domestic demand may slip meaning our European customers will become more important to us. The Nature Restoration Fund is open to projects that help Scotland's species, woodlands, rivers and seas back on the road to recovery. This fund can provide funding from £25,000 up to £250,000. This is a superb fund, particularly if you have a large-scale project with elements which cannot be claimed under the Agri-Environmental Climate Scheme. Funding can be for a single year or multiple year duration. For more information and details on how to apply, have a look at the Nature Scott website. Find a link in the show notes. Going into autumn and into winter, it is important to carry out a feed budget and calculate any shortfall which you may have going into winter, so supplementary feeding can be sourced. The poor silages which have been analysed so far this year will require a considerable amount of supplementary feeding due to low ME and low protein levels. Have a look at the FAS Companion app which can help you carry out your feed budget or contact your industry expert or consultant. You can download the app on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Thanks for listening. See you again next time. Sasha Grierson, Principal Consultant at SAC Consulting, has been working on a project to make searching for the content you want to find on our website, faz.scot, even easier. We join her now in a conversation with Mark Bauscher Gibbs to find out more. Hi, my name is Sasha Grierson. I'm a Senior Project Manager at SAC Consulting, and I'm here with my colleague, Mark Bauscher Gibbs. And we're here today to talk about a new search function, a new quicker way of searching for resources on the faz.scot website with specific reference to arable farming. Hi, Mark. Hi, Sasha. We got together back in, oh gosh, a few months ago now, didn't we? Probably in the spring. Yeah. I wanted to explain the concept to you about the new search function on the website. The new search function is called QuickFaz. You can find it at faz.scot forward slash QuickFaz. We've tried to build a new search function by thinking more carefully about our users. Often farmers, they've had a busy day, they're very time poor. Everybody uses the web as a resource for gathering information. And we wanted to try and design something that allowed people to ask a question 
of the website and to get a manageable number of resources out based on the subject matter they were searching about. Last year, we did uh, beef and sheep farming, and this year we did arable farming. And Mark, can you tell us a little bit about what we found? Yes, I mean, it was quite an interesting couple of days, wasn't it? Um, You start out... Uh, thinking, oh, this is going to be easy. We all know what the headings are in arable farming, and and you can sort of section them out. You know whether it's growing the crop or selling the crop or planting the crop. But actually, when you start breaking it down and trying to think, well, actually, how should we subdivide this up such that it, it is easier to get to where the information is that you want to find out about? It did take. Bit more time than we thought you know in principle the the idea is a good concept and, and hopefully being able to sort of partition off the subjects in a better way and actually you then talked about researching historical data and then being able to put that in the similar categories so yes i mean it's got the the approach was sort of twofold such that we should get back information into the right places as well as information that's going to be coming in in the future yeah, I think that's a really good summary. And um, I think it's it's to try to put ourselves in the position of people who've they've, they've been out, they've been farming for the day, they've only got to the first job on their to-do list by about five o'clock. And, uh, and by then they're trying to wind up their day. And they've come in and sat down and they're scratching their heads, maybe going, hang on a minute, what went right? But actually, more importantly, what went wrong? I've got half an hour where I just want to kind of have a have a trundle around the web and, and see see what I can pick up to to help inform my decision making the following day. While we were doing this, we did uncover some gaps in our provision of information and one of those which I think is the reason why we're here today to have a chat mark is on the concept that we spend a huge amount of time farming thinking about how we produce our product and we spend a lot of time thinking about how we grow it how we how we feed it how we how whether it's cattle sheep or a or a field of of spring barley but actually some of the gaps there were about how we actually go about selling it and how we can optimize getting the very best income for that crop that we've grown and i think that's really where you picked up on mark and you brought your expertise and experience to to ask the question, how do we ensure we get the best income from our crop? Yes, I mean, I think, I mean, one's only got to look at what the market's done in the last 12 months. And I know the circumstances have been extenuating such that we've had the war uh, in Ukraine and Russia, and it's actually sort of thrown world markets into turmoil. You could have sold your grain at harvest last year in 2021 in the low 200s. Um, and if you'd managed to keep it for nine months, you would have been selling it for the low 300s. You know, so it had increased a third in value. Now, that's not the norm. And, and, and it would be amiss of me to think that, that that is the norm and sort of pass that message on. But there is merit. And um, if you look back over the last 10 years, there there is an increase in, in, in crop value for, for grain that's held uh, long term. And of course, one shouldn't presume that it's the norm for everybody. Um, you may not have the infrastructure, of course, to, to be able to hold that grain for that length of time. Um, some farmers will, some farmers won't. And you may have cash flow requirements that make you decide that you should be offloading uh, you know, a higher percentage of your, your grain uh, shortly after harvest. Particular note, I think, this year is that in order to 
be able to take advantage of any price movements through the marketing season. And, and when we say the marketing season, we're really talking 10 months of the year. So let's say from August um, to the following could be August uh, if you're keeping shedding the grain to the last moment. So you've got an 11, 12 months period where you might want to have the uh, or make use of the ability to uh, buy into those market movements um, if you've got the infrastructure to do so. The trouble with this year's harvest, of course, was it was so quick. We were all combining very rapidly. Grain was going to st- into store at an incredible pace. Um, the daytime temperatures were in the high 20s, sometimes in the low 30s. And lo and behold, you may have a thousand tons of grain sitting in a heap at ambient temperature of, let's say, 25 degrees C. So that's, I'm hearing from you that that's got to be a bit of a problem. And, and actually, you know, it's not as simple as just expecting this year, it's not been as simple as just expecting the nights to be cooler and for the grain to cool down naturally, what are the things that people need to think about when they're actually cooling grain? I think you have to have a programmed approach. Um, it's a busy time of year. You've finished harvest. You've your mind's on other things. You you've got livestock to feed. You've got other crops to get in the ground for next year, and you've got all this grain sitting in the grain store. And you may have several different heaps, and you may have a limited number of fans that have to get moved around to blow. And um, talking from personal experience, I know that it's very easy to think, oh, well, I've blown, I've blown that um, for a couple of nights. I'm going to move on to the next one, and then I'm going to move on to the next one. And very soon, you know, if you're not monitoring carefully, and, I, and by monitoring, I think you really need to be taking grain store temperatures uh, and moisture contents weekly, at least weekly in the first couple of months after harvest, such that you are confident that you're moving that cold air front up through the heap of grain completely. So that's a very clear message there is that, you know, you need weekly monitoring and you need to be able to have a a series of milestones along the way between harvest and Christmas in order to optimise your storage conditions to maintain your crop in the best possible condition. Now, what about if you're aiming for the malting barley premium? How how do you, what else do you need to add on to that that systematic approach? Well, malting barley is really all about germative capacity. Um, so germination is the priority, and we want to do everything we can to avoid losing germination. Consequently, we don't really store um, malting barley um, to below ten degrees C um, because that can. Re- increase the risk of uh, secondary dormancy. Um, so for long-term storage, malting barley is usually dry 13% moisture content. Um, uh, and really in uh, an aim to keep that germination uh, capacity intact. And can you talk a little bit about relative humidity? How does that affect storage and your, your storage conditions and what you might have to do to, to maintain those optimum conditions? Well, relative humidity is a measure of the air's moisture content. And our aim is to keep the relative humidity at 65% or lower. And in doing that, um, in lowering the temperature, of the grain that lowers the relative humidity in equilibrium with the moisture content and and that's what effectively increases storage time. Okay and then there's something about the grain surface being particularly vulnerable. Well there is um, in so much as that the whole purpose of uh, cooling grain is that you're pushing 
the warm air that's come into store with that grain up out of the uh, grain mass. And the problem that can quite often occur is that, you know, if you don't have the sort of rigorous um, cooling program that we talked about earlier, you incomplete the process by moving on to the next block. And lo and behold, that warm air has just been pushed to the surface and not expelled completely from the heap. Therein lies the problems and the that top, maybe a couple of feet, is, is warmer, it's moister, it's carrying the moisture that's been pushed up out of the grain and that's where the mite activity uh, might occur. And, and the telltale sign is you walk up onto a heap of grain and it's suddenly hard under your foot and not giving way and you know you've got problems. Farmers are often wary of blowing moisture into a grain heap. Is there any truth in that? No, I mean, it is uh, it is a slight misconception. Um, you know, if you're blowing air um, with a sort of four to six degree differential, it's not possible to dampen the grain. And unless you've got sort of driven rain into uncovered external fans, it, it won't be an issue. So just to summarise briefly, farmers have an opportunity to achieve the best price for the crop uh, and that's improved by being able to safely and methodically store the crop for up to 10 months post-harvest. You need to record grain moisture, temperature and specific weight coming into store. And you need to be consistent and thorough in your approach to grain cooling and to adopt a regular routine for in-store sampling and monitoring. Well, no year is going to be the same. And um, I suppose if you are to draw any conclusions about the financial benefits of uh, storing grain over a long period of time, um, you do need to sort of consider perhaps an eight to 10 year period. Um, if you look back at the um, the eight years from 2012 to 2020, for example, and look at the price of October traded grain and March traded grain, there was an increase of £8.50 a tonne on average. Now, out of those eight years, two years um, saw a decrease in value, but the increases in value outweighed the decrease on those two years. Um, if you transfer that £6.50 a tonne to a hectare basis, that's potentially around £60 a hectare. That could uh, and has historically been shown over that eight-year period in this example uh, to lift your gross margin. So it's worth thinking that um, you know it's not a done deal. The gate isn't closed when it goes into store. It's, um, it is a, a living mass and it does need conditioning and looking after. Thanks so much, Mark. That's very insightful. If any of this information has been of interest to you, you can find this article that gives more detail on the topics that Mark has outlined on faz.scot forward slash quickfaz, choose arable farming, and then choose selling the crop, and you'll find this publication there. Many thanks. We are always busy at the Farm Advisory Service, bringing you timely information, useful resources, and hosting events and groups to help you to build your farming network. We know that new entrants to agriculture can find it hard to find land to get started on their farming journey, but there are still several opportunities to be had out there. Tenancies, joint ventures, and seasonal lets are just some of those opportunities. If you'd like to find out more about these and other entry opportunities, why don't you come along to our in-person event, Alternatives to Land Ownership. This is being held on Saturday the 24th of September. 
The event is taking place at Cityton Farm in Newmacher, Aberdeenshire, thanks to our lovely host farmers for the day, Meg Morrison and Clark Hibbard. They will share their story of how they recently took on the tenancy of Cityton after building their business up through various joint ventures and seasonal lets. You can also hear from a local accountant, Jane Mitchell, from Johnston Carmichael. Jane's going to cover business planning and finance. And we've also got Alan Young from the Scottish Land Matching Service, who's there to give a workshop on some joint venture opportunities. If you'd like to join us at this very useful event, you can book your place now using the link in the show notes. Faz Sounds has released the second episode of one of our new shows this week. The Natural Capital podcast, hosted by Rachel Smiley, aims to highlight some of Scotland's most precious natural resources. Listen to this clip of episode two, where Rachel travelled out to Tainish Nature Reserve with her microphone to speak with Stan Phillips and Helen Bibby about Scotland's rainforests. So Stan, what makes our rainforest so special? Well, Scotland's rainforest is hugely important for biodiversity, and there are suites of species here that uh, you'll find nowhere else. But it's not just about that. It's an important place for the people that live and work on the west coast of Scotland. Its management provides jobs, its canopy provides cover for livestock, communities use it for exercise, health and well-being. It's a destination for tourists. But it can also help us combat the climate emergency and biodiversity crisis. It's an ecosystem that uh, locks up huge amounts of carbon while providing a vital home for a globally significant assemblage of species, some which, as I said, occur nowhere else. Yeah, I think what you're saying is so true. It's such a valuable type of natural capital, providing lots of ecosystem services of the regulating and supporting and also the cultural services, like you said, about the recreation and the value to the surrounding community. Well, that's great. Can you tell us something about the diversity found in these woodlands? Yeah, the rainforest provides perfect conditions for mosses, liverworts and lichens, and that's where the real biodiversity of these woodlands is found in the, in the lower plants, where there's hundreds of species that occur throughout these, these woodlands, a lot of which you won't find in, in any other habitat or in other parts of Scotland. So the sheer abundance and diversity of the species found here makes this habitat pretty unique and internationally important. And remember that we have all the best remaining sites in Europe for this habitat too. Now, you've already mentioned the big oak trees uh, behind me. Can you point out some other species that are just surrounding us just now? Yeah, we've got a ground flora here of very many different types of fern species. Um, We've got honeysuckle coming up through the ground flora. Um, There's boulders uh, covered in in the species that I, I keep mentioning, the mosses and liverworts. And flowering plants, of course, which are most prevalent in the spring here, like like the bluebells and the uh, enchanters, nightshade and and other species. There's a fern behind us here, which is called hay-scented buckler fern. If you pick a piece and put it in your pocket, once it's dried out when you got home, it smells really strongly of hay. But uh, that's a species that's only found in in these rainforests along the, the sliver of west coast of Scotland. You never really see it much more than a a kilometre from the sea. 
So it's got and rainforests are also important for butterfly species, a number of iconic butterfly species that are on the edge of these rainforests, such as checkered skipper. These rely heavily on woodlands. You only find checkered skippers on the edges of woodlands on the west coast, usually in a 50-mile radius of Fort William for some reason. So along with butterflies, yeah, there's lots of other things they use. So the glades are as important as the woodland itself and the woodland edge is as important for species like that. If you'd like to listen to the rest of the episode, click through the link in our show notes. I caught up with the producer of the Natural Capital podcast, Ian Boyd, and I asked Ian what's on his desk. This week on my desk, I have quite a varied workload. I cover quite a large remit of various environmental projects and that means I'm, I'm quite often jumping around in various clients and, and various bits of work. The main things this week I'm working on are some fairly large planning applications and, and permitting issues for mostly poultry farms. So we have a few of these going through the, the planning process. Um, or through permitting issues with with SEPA, um, and they tend to be the large scale, intensive kind of agriculture scale developments. But but not always. Sometimes some specialist smaller sites as well. And the whole reason we're involved is ensuring they're designed and operating to the highest environmental and, and welfare standards. Um, and that can include a whole bunch of stuff, including the public engagement specialist technical assessments and, and just helping with the general planning process. So that's one of the main things we're working on at the moment. We're also doing quite a lot of peatland surveys right now. So I have been out helping colleagues um, on some peat surveys for peatland action. And that is part of restoration work. Um, there's a big drive in Scotland at the moment to really try and protect and enhance our peatlands we have this really valuable resource in scotland which contains a lot of our carbon and it's all tied into climate change and our net zero ambitions and yeah there's a big amount of work at the moment making sure our peatlands are functioning exactly how they should be functioning and are staying this valuable store of carbon as opposed to a, a source of it also getting a lot of renewable inquiries which was the main thing i focused on when I first started this job. And it has come back around a lot recently, especially with the energy crisis and everyone is seeing their bills go up at the moment. So what we're seeing is a lot of farmers are now looking again at potential energy saving or renewable opportunities on their farm, which is partly to help offset their bills. Um, it also helps them become less reliant on the national grid. And it also can sometimes help them, you know, improve their, their carbon footprint as well as they have more sustainable forms of renewable generation. And I am the producer for the Fast Sounds Natural Capital podcast, which you would have heard a snippet of earlier. Um, and episode two is out this month and it is on Scotland's rainforests, which a lot of people don't realise we have rainforests in Scotland, but we do have temperate rainforests. So we have a episode on that explaining the importance of them and how you can protect them and what to do if you have them on farm and how valuable a resource is and I think you can find a link to that in the show notes below. So it's quite a varied workload but it all comes under environmental 
issues, sustainability issues, climate change, it's all within that area. And that is my field and that is my kind of area of expertise. So covers quite a range of different clients and different work streams, but it all comes back to these kind of main environmental issues. I began working in environmental and rural sector. Well, I started my job at SEC Consulting about seven and a half years ago now. Before that, I worked in the energy sector. I worked for Scottish Water for a bit. I had various kind of roles like that. So when I first started for SEC Consulting, it was entirely a renewable energy focus. Because at the time, that was the main driver for a, a lot of small and medium scale energy developments was in rural sector or on farms. And when I first started here, I was just helping from initial feasibility assessments right through the whole planning process through to the actual development and construction of small and medium scale wind, hydro schemes and AD plants. I've always had an interest in the environment and, and climate change. I, I was a member of 2050 Climate Group, um, and I've always had this kind of real interest in trying to preserve it and enhance our kind of natural world and try and make sure we leave it in a better place for, for future generations. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I did grow up and I'm from Oban on the west coast of Scotland. So I've always been surrounded by quite rural landscapes and hills and the sea and, and lochs. So I've always been quite um, connected to the rural environment, but not specifically agriculture. Um, so when I moved to my current job, learning about the whole agricultural industry was, was quite a, a learning curve at the start, but it's something um, yeah, I'm now quite used to. At the moment, it's an incredibly challenging time for the sector but that also makes it quite a rewarding time to be part of. It's challenging, especially for agriculture in the rural sector, because there's this really difficult need to balance healthy, nutritious, affordable food with thriving communities. And then you have all these economic issues at the moment, the cost of living. You have a whole bunch of environmental things you have to think about from net zero to to biodiversity loss and trying to balance all these things is very difficult and very complex but also makes it a really interesting field to work in especially in scotland where we have some of the, the best and most ambitious environmental standards and, and and goals in the world it generally is a really rewarding and, and enjoyable thing to be part of one of the things that i'm most passionate about is counteracting and challenging some of the greenwashing that has been going on and you do see a fair bit of um, in some sectors or from some companies. I think it's really important just now to, to not just to be seen to be acting green or to be seen to be environmentally friendly or tackling climate change, but to actually be acting on it. So I don't like just talking about these things. I like to actually seeing proper differences happening on the ground and people actually doing things and actually making a positive difference. Outside of work, I love traveling. I love getting outdoors, hiking, seeing friends, being in the natural environment, trying to be active and trying to be sporty. These are all the sort of things I like to do outside of work and try and 
get away from the desk and, and not sitting at a computer all the time. If you're as passionate and interested in tackling these complex and difficult environmental issues, please get in touch. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rural Roundup. If you like the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to make sure that you get notified every time we release a new episode. If you'd like to contact us, you can find all of our contact details in the show notes. See you again in a couple of weeks.